Previously on Transformers University, we left the Transformers comics back in 1984, but we're going to pull them into 1985. And before we start in the United States, we're going to go take a flight across the pond to the UK and discuss a very special portion of the continuity, Marvel UK's Transformers, right now on Transformers University. Hello, my friend, and welcome to Transformers University. I am your host and uh, professor, Anthony Bercali, owner-operator, madman behind TFU.info, and today we are going to talk about the Marvel UK Transformers comics, and these were a bit different than what you would see here where I live in the United States. Now, before we do that, first off, I want to thank uh, everyone who has subscribed to our YouTube channel. We are now at 450 subscribers, and if we get to 500 before May 8th, uh, I will start that giveaway. And uh, if we can get to 1,000 by May 8th, we will be giving away a Studio Series Thundercracker Toys R Us exclusive toy. Now... Also, I want to thank the 10 fine people who are supporting this podcast, the website, and our sister podcast, TFU News and Views, via Patreon. Uh, we've added two people to that uh, fold uh, in since the last episode, and that would be uh, Bedford Crenshaw, who is uh, joining us at the super senior level. We only got seven of those spots left, so uh, if you're interested in being a super senior in TFU.info's Transformers University... Uh, you got seven chances left. I uh, also want to thank uh, my friend Steve Stonebreaker, who uh, you may have heard his name on here before. He is the man behind uh, one of the original pieces of uh, Transformers record-keeping uh, history, the uh, Transformers FAQ, and uh, he has joined uh, as a freshman-level entry. And uh, Steve also runs the site that I use uh, for when we talk about Transformers coloring books and oddball bits of uh, written media. And we will be jumping into that in a few episodes as well. So we'll be jumping back to Steve's site in uh, in just a few weeks. But this week, we are doing Marvel UK comics. And really, this is one of the reasons I started this show. Um, because it's a piece of Transformers history and Transformers fiction I am not terribly familiar with. Uh, I've read a couple issues here and there. But uh, never really dedicated to reading it uh, in order uh, and in context of the Marvel comic. Now, the Marvel UK comic was a slightly different format than what we uh, got here in the United States. So those of you who are in the U.S. like I am, uh, you're used to a monthly 22-page comic. Uh, in the UK, they got these... Uh, Bi-weekly, at least going by the uh, the cover dates, uh, and please someone correct me if it's if it's actually weekly, but uh, bi-weekly books that were a mix of color and black and white, and there was roughly eleven pages per issue that had actual comic content. Some more, some less, and uh, as as these issues go on, it actually does become a bit less. Uh, and they were used uh, at a time when um, there was a gap in time between the final issue, issue four of the original U.S. Uh, miniseries, 
before they decided to make it an ongoing series with issue 5. So in order to fill the gap, the folks at Marvel UK decided to create uh, three story arcs uh, to fill in the spaces between issue 4 of the US run and issue 5. So we are going to be talking about Marvel UK issues 9 through 21. I know it sounds like a lot, but there's not a lot of pages actually in in some of these uh, stories. And we'll talk a bit more about that as we go on. But there is certainly a mystique to the Marvel UK comics, uh, especially to those of us in the United States. And for more on that, here is Jen from Icon Underground. Back in the early 90s, there is definitely this this, uh, feeling in the fandom that this was like amazing stuff if you can possibly get a hold of it uh some of us had communications with uk fans but i was not one of them but enough people did to sort of bring that that information and and just little there were just little mentions of it here and there i think the funniest thing is that uh for some reason like headmasters and victory like the japanese cartoon series got this reputation for being like super serious and violent and hardcore and in it was really not earned it was really not accurate at all but the uk comics had that same kind of reputation and it was 100 percent earned one of the the things that has amused me most with seeing this stuff get re-released uh, i think it was an idw collection of the uk comics that actually had like a teen rating on the back of it. And, you know, for something that was originally released to be read by kids, uh, I think that was pretty funny. Uh, but yeah, it was definitely, it was venerated in a sense as this like holy grail, amazing stuff that we didn't get. But it was actually, in that case, justified in a way that maybe the anime stuff wasn't. And don't forget, you can catch Jen on her own Transformers News podcast, Icon Underground, as well as the Stasis Pod podcast, where they review episode by episode some of the greatest series in Transformers history. And, of course, you can catch her on Twitter at IaconUG. And to echo Jen's point, uh, the Marvel UK stories were just something we heard about kind of tangentially in the Marvel US comics. And uh, those those stories were never really uh, brought over. Uh, In fact, only one story made it into the original 80-issue run of the u.s comic and that was the first one we'll be talking about today and that is man of iron now man of iron ran from issues 9 through 12 so that's uh four issues and it introduces us to a whole wave of british artists writers and assorted comics personnel now, a lot of these folks, being part of Marvel UK and being uh, on that side of the Atlantic Ocean, they had a bit of experience. Almost all of them either worked on Judge Dredd or Doctor Who or 2000 AD. 
And so the issue Man of Iron was written by Steve Parkhouse. Now, Parkhouse is a comics vet, also an artist. And he was the artist on a series called The Bo Jeffries Saga, uh, which was written by famed comics writer Alan Moore. Uh, pencils for the first two issues of Man of Iron, uh, issues 9 and 10, were by John Ridgway, who uh, also penciled Judge Dredd and Doctor Who, occasionally with uh, Steve Parkhouse at the helm writing. Now, colors were done by Josie Fermin, and in modern times today, she owns a china shop in the UK that makes uh, fine arts china with uh, uh, an emphasis on cat mugs. The letterer uh, on this issue is Richard Starkings, and that name is important uh, if you're a comics uh, historian or a, uh, you've probably seen it before. Uh, Richard Starkings founded a company called Comicraft, which was one of the first companies to do computer-based lettering and font building. And this issue was edited by Sheila Crana, and I cannot find much information on her other than she was an editor at Marvel UK. Alright, so let's get into the story behind Man of Iron. This issue starts out with the Decepticon jets bombing a place called Stansham Castle. And the castle curator, Roy Harker, is called in. Uh, and when we meet Roy, his son Sammy is playing bow and arrow in the woods. And he is being stalked by Jazz. And uh, Jazz has a run-in with Sammy. Sammy runs away. And Jazz radios in that he is surveilling this young boy. And then we flash back to the year 1017. So that is 1,001 years from this recording. Uh, Godwin the Strongarm attacks Stansham Castle. Uh, and he is defeated by the Man of Iron. Now, the Man of Iron looks a bit like Jazz and a bit like Megatron. Um, and we find out this is Roy telling Sammy the story, and Sammy believes that the Man of Iron is what he ran into in the woods. And that is the end of Part 1. As you can see, these go pretty quickly, and I probably condensed them a bit more than that. Um, I, of course, I will include links in the show description for you in case you want to go and read these online via Amazon.com. So we get to issue 10. And in issue 10, we start with uh, Sammy dreaming about spaceships. And he's floating above his house and he sees Mirage in his dreams. Or was he dreaming? And an interesting note here. So Sammy's room getting gets like sucked into this weird vortex of uh, things flying around like a, like a horror movie almost. And he has a toy Porsche that looks a lot like Jazz. In fact, he has the same stripe and same number on him. And Mirage, um, from the room, takes the drawing of the Man of Iron that Roy had shown Sammy in at the end of the previous issue. Then we find out uh, later on that uh, the people inspecting the castle and the bombing uh, tell Roy that there is a huge object underneath the castle and they don't know what it is. Uh, once again, Jazz is parked in vehicle mode outside of Sammy's house. And uh, his, the drawing is in the back of, on the back seat of the car. And Sammy notices it 
and Jazz and Sammy start talking, and Jazz gets Sammy to get in and closes the door before driving off, and that is the end of issue two. And that takes us to issue number 11, part three of Man of Iron. And here we have a couple of new people joining the creative team for this book. Uh, artist for this issue and the subsequent issue uh, is a gentleman by the name of Mike Collins. Now, he was a uh, prolific Marvel Comics artist, and uh, most notably, he drew Uncanny X-Men number 266, which is the first appearance in a regular issue of Gambit. Now, uh, Gambit also appeared in the annual that year. I don't know which one came out first, so arguably 266 could be the uh, first appearance of Gambit. Mike Collins also, in his spare time, is a uh, singer for a Tom Waits cover band called Tom Waits for No Men. And the colors on this issue are from another Doctor Who alum, Gina Hart. All right, so picking up where we left off. So Jazz and Sammy meet up with Mirage and Trailbreaker. Uh, Jazz tries to explain his name to Sammy, but says it is unpronounceable in our language. Uh, Decepticon jets attack the group, and then Blue Streak shows up and shoots one down. Jazz takes Sammy to meet Optimus Prime. Now, Optimus Prime explains to us what is under the castle. He believes there is a rescue shuttle underneath the castle and that is the end of part three so we move on to part four we find the shuttle under the castle and the shuttle has an autobot symbol and out from beneath the shuttle comes the man of iron now on a black and white page a secret jet who has been colored very differently over over the years in the various reprints of this story uh, so it could be Thundercracker, it could be Skywarp, it could be Starscream. And in fact, the way he has been colored throughout the years, he has been all three. Uh, sneaks up on the castle. The Man of Iron is there. And he gets killed. Oh no! Jazz rams the jet and the battle at the castle begins. The Autobots eventually went out and Optimus orders Jazz to destroy the ship, and then inside the ship, we find out that there is another Autobot in there that looks very much like the Man of Iron. Uh, he is eventually nicknamed the Navigator, uh, thanks to tfwiki.net on that, and he is asleep, and Jazz destroys the ship, killing the Navigator that he did not even know was in there. And that ends the story, and for more on just what a different kind of tale this is, we go to Chris McFeely of Transformers The Basics. You can tell that Transformers was still finding its feet when they wrote Man of Iron, and exactly what made a Transformers story hadn't really taken shape yet. But even when you view it in that context, there's no question that Man of Iron was different. Different, different entirely from the American stories that had come before it, the original miniseries. And even the UK stories that would come right after it. The tone of it is something uh, more out of a UK boys action comic. Grim narration. Brutal action. Not action movie action. Not exciting explosive action. Brutal cold action. And the way they present things from the point of view of Sammy, the young boy. The Transformers themselves are probably more alien 
than they've ever been. Eerie, otherworldly beings lurking in the shadows, stalking through the night. Part of when you were a kid and you went to bed and you wondered what the world was like then after you were asleep and only adults were out there in the in the dark, mysterious midnight world. Very almost fairy tale-ish. And as unique as it is, you can still see the echoes of that same approach in IDW's early comics and infiltration. And even the first live-action movie follows that, that basic template. Attacks in the night and in stolen glimpses of robots at first contact in vehicle mode and then a big final battle with the De- but with Decepticons who are more monsters than characters because they never speak in Man of Iron. They're totally mute. But man, like I said, Man of Iron, it's not an action blockbuster. It's a really haunting story of humans who get caught up in something they don't understand and they aren't key to the resolution of it. They can't affect it. And the Transformers don't become their friends. Like, they just vanish, never to be seen again. And the end of the story tells us Sammy never saw the Transformers again and he was left only with stories and nightmares. I mean, I wouldn't want every Transformers story to be like Man of Iron. They couldn't be, you know, they just... But it's still one of my favourites because it represents the earliest example of how truly different a Transformer story could be. And be sure to catch Chris's channel, Chris McFeely, on YouTube where he does his amazing video series, Transformers The Basics. As Chris pointed out, the story is different for what is a Transformer story. And as he mentioned, it is very similar more to British action comics. And it's interesting to note that since most of the creative staff came from Doctor Who or Judge Dredd or 2000 AD, uh, that they would carry along very similar storytelling to these books. Now, another thing worth noting is the art the art on this book, uh, well, these four books, I should say, and this storyline is very, very toyetic. Uh, the character models, for the most part, in this story and in the other two stories we're going to talk about, very much mirror what the physical toys look like, as opposed to the floral dairy designs from the original cartoon or anything that was cooked up in the Marvel U.S., And it's interesting to see in this book, particularly, the characters they used, Jazz, Mirage, even Blue Streak to some extent, are all characters that have fairly proportional robot modes. They're they're the most human-looking as far as those toys go. Um, And the Decepticons, with the exception of the, the final battle, rarely transform out of jet mode. And that takes us to the next story arc, Transformers UK issues 13 through 17. So this is a five-issue story arc that totals 42 pages of story. And it's entitled The Enemy Within. And in this story, we have one very important change on the creative team. So while we have a, a number of returning folks on this story, in particular uh, John Ridgway, Pencils Part 1, and uh, Mike Collins is the art for the remainder of this story arc. Gina Hart does the colors, Richard Starkings the letters, Sheila Crana 
the editor. But the most important part of this one is the writer. This book, first Transformers story written by Simon Furman. Now, if you're not familiar with Simon Furman and you are a Transformers fan, shame on you. Uh, <laughs> Simon Furman uh, is probably up on that Mount Rushmore of Transformers creators. If I was to build that four-headed mountain, it would definitely be Jim Shooter, Bob Budiansky, Simon Furman, and uh, that fourth one is probably Hideaki Yoke. Uh, but Simon Furman, as far as creating the Transformers mythos and being a huge part of what we now know as the Transformers and their history and their mythology, it is all largely contributed to by Simon Furman. Now, this is the early days of Simon Furman's career before it became synonymous with Transformers comic books and uh, it'll be still a few years before he ends up also taking on the US series but from basically here on out he is the writer of the Marvel UK run and before this he wrote uh, we're going to talk a little bit about his first comic book story uh, which was only a year before for a magazine called Scream Magazine, and this was a comics magazine in the UK. His first story was uh, the majority of a horror story called Terror of the Cats. That's right, Terror of the Cats. Uh, he wrote the parts uh, three through six, so the final four parts of this story. It's about an experiment that goes wrong, and cats attack people. Um, I don't think you need an experiment for that, but uh, the cats go out of control. Think Alfred Hitchcock's Birds, but with cats, and uh, kind of the gist of this. And if you do a little uh, Googling, uh, you can find the whole story uh, scanned online. You can actually find every issue of Scream magazine, and that is with an exclamation point after the word Scream on, uh, on the Internet. And you can read this little tale all on your own. Turns out the cats are being controlled by a giant telepathic brain. Uh, there's lots of death in this comic. <laughs> and ultimately, the giant brain gets killed. Sorry for spoiling a 35-year-old comic for you, but you had your chance to read it. But anyway, I digress. So this is the first story by Simon Furman. And again, we have some very toyetic art in this book and an interesting note about Gina Hart. Um, she colored Megatron in this book with a lot of gold highlights, which actually matches his box art from the toy. So let's jump into the story. This arc begins with a bit of parallel storytelling. So we jump back and forth between the Decepticons and the Autobots uh, throughout. So Starscream, we start with Decepticons and Starscream is openly questioning Megatron's authority and leadership and practices. And then we get back, jump to the Autobots and Brawn and the Autobots are repairing the Ark. Uh, during these repairs, uh, there's a piece of equipment that uh, short circuits 
uh, for lack of a better term, and Bronn gets electrocuted by it and believes that the rest of the Autobots are now against him. Starscream, uh, in his own little personal private time, plans uh, some treachery, and Ravage happens to be spying on him, so Starscream attempts to kill Ravage, and uh, this battle takes them outside, and Starscream shoots him down a mountain and covers him in rocks and believes he is dead. Braun fights with the Autobots and fights a very weirdly designed version of Sideswipe that has this full black head and like a Y that uh, that's shaped to cover make his make it look like he has eyes and a nose and that's it and no mouth and weird shoulder designs uh it just hunted down uh it's a very odd looking version of sideswipe and braun basically punches his way out of the arc and runs off and we end with starscream attacking a u.s air force base on to part two and now we switch over the art back to Mike Collins for the rest of the, the story. Ravage turns out to have survived and seeks revenge. He's found by Megatron and uh, immediately Ravage rats him out. Braun is tearing through the U.S. suburbs and still thinks cars are sentient and plans on punishing humans for enslaving the cars. So he tries to free the cars who he thinks are alive uh, but aren't. And then when the cars don't rise up with him, he decides to kill all cars. Starscream continues his attack on the base, and the bots and the cons prepare to stop their teammates. End part two. On to part three. The Autobots try to stop Braun. And here we see Red Alert, new character, uh, sneak up on Braun and punch him, basically sucker punch him, and knock him out. Now, according to tfwiki.net, he uh, appears in part one, though he's miscolored blue and red and looks like gears. I don't know if it's really red alert in that part one, but he's in his proper colors here in issue three, and this is his only in fiction appearance in the comics, US or UK, he does appear on a cover of a book uh, in, in a big group shot, and he does appear in the Transformers Universe profile books that we'll cover at some point. But he never actually appears in a story ever again. So this is the one appearance by Red Alert, uh, who we'll meet more of in 1985, especially in the cartoon. The Autobots take Braun back for repair. On the Decepticon side of the story, the other Seekers, Skywarp and Thundercracker, ultimately shoot down Starscream. Megatron passes a death sentence on Starscream, but Starscream demands trial by combat. And why does that sound familiar? Trial by combat is something that we've also already learned about in the cartoon in the episode Heavy Metal War. We then see Megatron back at the base watching history tapes of Cybertron. And we see a trial by combat between two Decepticons named Tornado and Earthquake. The two fight, and they both ultimately die. And Megatron wonders if there's a way he can do this similar outcome with Starscream. Ravage recommends that, hey, Megs, pick up the phone, call Optimus, and suggest Braun. <laughs> and uh, this is where 
we end up. Brawn and Starscream, trial by combat, so that Optimus can redeem Brawn in his eyes and in the eyes of his teammates, and so Starscream can pull one last rabbit out of his hat and avoid Megatron's wrath. And this issue ends with a really neat uh, line. So the last page is Brawn and Starscream lunging at each other, end of, you know, the end of Rocky Three style, uh, about to hit, hit each other. And uh, Brawn is saying, for the Autobots, and Starscream says, for myself. And <laughs> that is just such a great Starscream line. We move on to part four. This is basically an issue that is entirely a fight between Brawn and Starscream. Ultimately, it ends with Brawn cornered. Ravage and Mirage are both nearby, and each one has their own plan. And Ravage is wearing this massive gun on his back. It's like the size of an old TV camera. It's huge. And that's basically issue four, part four of this uh, story. Part 5 starts with an explosion. Starscream is flying away. Uh, victorious. And then he gets shot down by Ravage. Ravage then turns to the Decepticons and blames the Autobots' witness, Mirage, for shooting down Starscream. But as it turns out, Braun lives. Because really, it takes a more than an explosion to kill Braun, right? Turns out Mirage had made a hologram, uh, and his hologram power had been increased by the same accident that had damaged Braun. Now, interesting note here, and I think we mentioned this in one of the previous comic episodes, that Mirage's invisibility powers in the cartoon and Hound's hologram powers from the cartoon seem to be swapped at times, either in the comics or the coloring books. And we end with... a. Uh, aggravated Decepticons, and they're ready to attack the Ark. And that wraps up Enemy Within. So that is five issues. That is 42 pages. And we get on to the next story. So the next story is called Raiders of the Last Ark. And this will span 22 pages across issues 18 through 21. So if my math is right on the page numbers, there are 42 pages of story across the enemy within. There's 22 pages as part of Raiders of the Last Arc. That makes a 64-page story arc, which is really like one really good deluxe issue of a comic or three individual uh, books minus two pages. So basically what you have here is a three-comic story arc plus Man of Iron, which was two. So that's about five issues before you get to issue number five of the U.S. book. Now, as far as the creative team goes for Raiders of the Last Arc, the art duties are shared by Mike Collins and Jeff Anderson. Now, Jeff Anderson uh, was also another one of these Marvel UK guys that did a lot of the same books that the rest of these folks that we have mentioned throughout this episode have. Uh, he is not, in fact the actor that played Randall in the Clerks franchise. He is, however, uh, at this point in time, an ordained minister. Since God created man, and man created the Transformers. The Transformers are like a gift from God, Randall. 
No, sir. They are not a gift from God. They are an unholy curse from the beast we call the Desolate One. I don't really want to hear this, Randall. <laughs> the first of the fallen. So this issue starts with the Decepticons attacking the Ark. It picks up right where the enemy left in, left off. Interesting note in here is that Optimus shoots down Laserbeak in, uh, early on in the battle. And he's really harsher to his, uh, to the Autobots under his command. Like, just pushing them to get out there, make your shots count. And, you know, almost as if he has a little bit of disdain for his team. Uh, during this fight, we get Windcharger uh, fighting Ravage. And Rumble fighting Sideswipe. And the Rumble Sideswipe battle is interesting because it's basically the battle of guys with pile drivers. And now we move on to issue two. Now, issue two uh, lays across some interesting points. Now, before we get into that, we have another 2080 Judge Dredd alum, and that is the lettering duties in this issue are taken over by John Aldrich, and he will only take this issue. They'll go back to Richard Starkings in 3 and 4. Now, he um, is a celebrated British letterer, and it's interesting to note that in the book, Stan Lee's How to Write Comics, Starkings talks about letterers in that book. And he mentions Aldrich as one of his, quote, British masters. And you can check out that book on Google Books. It's free online if you just search it out. And the lettering style in this book is very different. It's very digital looking. It's very computer looking in an age before there was computer lettering. These books weren't done with computer lettering. These books were done by hand. So it's, it's really interesting to see that look in a comic from 1985 uh, before it was just so easy to do by just typing. All right, so let's get onto the story here a bit more. Optimus realizes that the Ark's defenses need to be activated, and he decides to do that by reactivating Auntie. Auntie was the original name of the Ark. It's mentioned in the first issue of the comic. It's mentioned by Jim Shooter in my interview with him way back in episode two, and it also alludes to the fact that, especially with the title of this storyline, that there were more than one Ark. Which makes me wonder what the names were. If this was Auntie, is there an uncle? Is there a, you know, sixth cousin twice removed? But I digress. Megatron follows Optimus, and Optimus succeeds in reactivating Auntie. And Auntie, she's not at full mental capacity. She decides to stop all the fighting and uses magnetism to stick everyone to the walls. And she decides she's going to judge both teams and only one will survive. And that's the end of issue two. So we move on to issue three. Uh, and here Richard Starkings back as the letterer. And he will be throughout uh, this story. Here we find out Ravage and Windcharger, because of their electromagnetic capabilities, um are both unaffected by Auntie's magnetism, and they must team up. And Optimus and Megatron also discuss possibly teaming up as a way to escape. We go back to Windcharger and Ravage, and they meet Guardian, and the issue ends. Now, the Guardian is a, uh, a robot built to guard the depths of the Ark. 
and he's someone that will show up uh, many more times uh, in the Marvel UK comics, eventually in the US comic, and even in the current IDW continuity. But before we get further into that, let's move to issue four. And this issue begins with a neat callback to Megatron's toy, the way of escape that Megatron was discussing with Optimus was that Megatron was beginning to tap into a black hole via his fusion cannon. That is straight off the back of his box uh, as one of his abilities that he can tap into the power of a black hole and fire it through his gun. But before he can finish preparing that, Windcharger and Ravage burst in. Windcharger tackles Guardian to the ground and Ravage kills Auntie just tears through her. Or as it's put in the book, she dies again. After the melee, Megatron looks to attack Optimus, given that he is super powered up. And he is stopped by Windcharger in his magnetic abilities, who launches him out of the side of the arc and into the atmosphere. Uh, before he finally passes out. Now, this story is almost over but before we wrap up Raiders of the Last Ark I'm going to toss it to Stuart Webb author of the book Transformation a personal journey through the British Transformers comic hello there this is Stuart Webb from Adam Arty and I'm here to talk to you for a couple of minutes about the overlooked member of the original trilogy of Marvel UK stories Raiders of the Last Ark. It's often overlooked because it wasn't reprinted for years, and because even its author doesn't think it's particularly good, and it is the weakest of those first three stories. But it does have two particular things which stand out about it. The first is that it is the only substantial thing of note Windcharger ever did in the 1980s. It might in fact be the only thing he's ever done ever. I've not read all the modern comics, I can't be entirely sure about that, but uh, he's certainly not never done very much. So if you want to see the massive mag magnetism at his best, this is pretty much your only option. And he does get that great moment where he shows that if only he wasn't tired, he could easily kill Megatron any time he likes. The other, perhaps more notable thing about this story, is that in Ravage, as Windcharger's partner for the story, is the first sympathetic portrayal of the Decepticon. He is the co-hero of the story. He teams up with Windcharger. He has banter. He has a code of honor. He saves the day. And he has lots of good funny lines. Uh, there are memorable Decepticon moments. We have the comic and the cartoon before this. But this is really the first time where you get a guy who you can root for on that side. And there is a through line from that all the way from here through to the scavengers today. It is the beginning of Shades of Grey in Decepticons. And that in itself is a hugely important and vital contribution of the series. And people uh, tend not to remember this story doing just because it is so quietly forgotten. And as well as a third thing to note, it is the first of the duology of Indiana Jones title-inspired stories. This and Buster Witwicky of the Car Wash of Doom. Tell me, RDW, when are we going to get The Last Crusader Con and The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull Ring? 
Come on, James Roberts, you're letting us down. You've got to step that in before we end. And you can find Stewart's book on Amazon.com, and I will include a link for that in the show notes if you want to check it out. It is some good stuff, and he covers every issue from a British perspective, which is uh, uh, quite neat, especially for the U.S. run of the comic. And you can also catch him on Twitter at InflatableDalek. And again, I'll keep all, I'll put all of that into the show notes and description. So finally, to wrap up this storyline, the final panel, Optimus and Gears are uh, surveying the damage and talking about who needs repairs. And they notice carved into the metal on the side of the arc is the phrase, we'll be back. And it's kind of ominous. It's kind of neat. But it's also interesting that it is carved into the side of the arc because where we start off, and we will start this off next episode in issue five of the U.S. comic, we get one of the most iconic pieces of Transformers art of all time, and it involves a message being carved into the side of something. Yes, I know that's vague, but uh, you'll just have to wait till next time if you don't already know what I'm talking about. So that will wrap up this episode of Transformers University. I am your host, Anthony Brucalli. And, of course, if you like the show, please use the Amazon links in our show's description. Uh, by using them, anything you buy off of Amazon, uh, including some of those books that I will uh, link to, anything you buy off of Amazon, Amazon kicks us a little bit of change back to... Uh, help with uh, running the show. And of course, if you want to support the show directly, I'm really trying to grow this uh, Patreon community that we have. And we have 10 really great people so far, and I want to build that up. So swing on by to patreon.com slash T-F-U-I-N-F-O, T-F-U info. You would have gotten the show a day earlier at the very least. Plus, there's all sorts of Patreon exclusive stuff I am doing, polls, contests, and even just more direct conversations with me. Uh, you can do that all on Patreon. And if you like the show, please don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you listen to the show. Is it on iTunes, if it's on Google Play, or if it's on YouTube, youtube.com slash TFU info. And uh, you can also swing over there for a whole bunch of other stuff. If you've been listening, you know, you know the story. But I am not going to inundate you with any more of me going on about ways you can join in the conversation. Join in the conversation. It's a lot of fun. And uh, I do the show for you guys. So uh, if you folks like the show, uh, please join in and uh, you can get a little better acquainted with, with me and everything else we do. So next time, we are jumping into more comic book action as we talk Marvel U.S. Comics 5 through 8 uh, some of the most iconic uh, cover art in the history of Transformers in those books and some of the more interesting contributors to Transformers fiction and Transformers art people you didn't even know touched the franchise and its history next time on Transformers University see ya